2: Strange Arrivals is a production of iHeart 3D audio. For full exposure, listen with headphones. In October of 2020, in the midst of the pandemic, I spoke by Zoom with author Colin Dickey. He is the author of Ghostland, about American haunted houses, and teaches at National University. I spoke with him about his latest book. The Unidentified, Mythical Monsters, Alien Encounters, and Our Obsession with the Unexplained. I'm Toby Ball, and this is Strange Arrivals. My name
3: is Colin Dickey. I am the author of The Unidentified, Mythical Monsters, Alien
2: Encounters, and Our Obsession with the Unexplained. So how did you come to write this book? Like what, what interest led you to, to doing the research and then writing then writing? Um, I think I've always been interested in the way
3: in which a set of beliefs or ideas which you could maybe call sort of like fringe beliefs um, you know for for lack of a better term, stuff that's not taken seriously by by mainstream science or journalism or religion or or kind of you know the usual kind of authorities and and thus gets sort of shunted to the side in terms of you know superstition and that kind of stuff. Um, but but I found that that those kind of Beliefs often really, whether or not one believes that they're true or not, they have a, a pretty enormous effect on culture and 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 the way you know the world works. And you know they have sort of material effects. And I've found that it seems necessary to talk about these things again, not necessarily in terms of. Uh, are they real or all that? Are they, you know, fake? Although, you know, that's an interesting question But but more so like what do these beliefs do in in the world and how do they they affect the world around us? Um, you know, even for those of us who don't necessarily believe in these things and I you know my, my previous book ghost land in American history and haunted places was was similarly based around this question of you know I think whether or not you believe that ghosts exist it's sort of undeniable that uh, the sort of language of of ghosts and haunted places are are things that sort of drive American culture and sort of say a great deal about our history. So I think that's kind of how I gradually sort of got more and more interested in these kind of, you know, again, quote unquote, fringe topics, for lack of a better word.
2: Did you have sort of a, a, a central thesis for this book, which for people who haven't read it is, you know, it um, it encompasses sort of a variety of different, you know, quote-unquote fringe topics, including cryptids and, and UFOs. Is there some s- sort of central organizing thesis you have? Well, it's funny. It started out, um, so,
3: so this, this book in particular, um, in the wake of the 2016 election, um, you know, there was a lot of discussion about the ways in which uh, social media companies like Facebook had had been responsible directly or indirectly for pushing a lot of conspiracy theories into the mainstream, and you know at the time I thought, well, you know that's that's undeniably true, and I, I think that these companies have a real obligation that they they aren't taken seriously. But at the same time, I, I wanted to push back on the idea that the rise in conspiracy theories was somehow unique to a social media era, and um, and what I wanted to do was to. Do a kind of genealogical history, in some sense, of um, you know a, a set of fringe beliefs and/or you know conspiracy theories. And in the beginning, I, I cast a pretty wide net. So you know, my the the first draft of the book, um, you know, had everything from you know anti-Semitic conspiracy theories like the Protocols of the Elders of Zion to um, you know flat Earth conspiracy theories, as well as um, uh, cryptids and. Uh, UFOs and and as I worked through the material and kind of, you know worked on the book, I I found that I, I Kind of didn't want to go that wide. I wanted to kind of narrow it down. And so You know, so I I started to kind of pare back my my list of subjects But I, I couldn't quite get away from the fact that that the three topics that ended up being sort of the driving force of this book um, You know, not just cryptids and aliens, but also the the lost continents of Atlantis and Lemuria um, all were kind of Interrelated in some form historically, you know that that um, you know the the rise of the modern UFO movement comes out of um, you know uh, Ray Palmer's uh, magazine Fate, and Ray Palmer before that had introduced the world to the the Shaver mysteries, and um, you know the the Shaver the with these sort of kind of sci-fi but maybe supposedly true things about these sort of weird underground uh, races that controlled uh, you know our mind and, and thoughts and that sort of thing and 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 Palmer had had titled the first installment of the Shaver Mysteries I remember Lemuria so sort of I couldn't get to UFOs without first talking about Lemuria this sort of fabled lost continent sort of the Pacific Ocean version of Atlantis that you know has a long history in and of itself so this is a long answer to your question but it you know I mean it did start with a kind of wide net and I found these kind of three topics intertwining in such a way that I, I, I wanted to try and figure out a way to account for them, a kind of, you know, a kind of a hypothesis that would, that would encompass these kind of three areas and why they, they seem to be so interrelated
2: to one another. So while you're talking, it, you know, there, there are certain figures in the book who, who seem to drive um, certain of these ideas do you have any sense about like why certain ideas like make it into sort of wider fringe belief, while others kind of die on the vine? Yeah, and I, I think that that again, I mean, I I that was
3: one of the questions that really drove me to try and sort of figure out why you know you know how this book was going to work is sort of figure out like why does you know, for example, uh, one of the things I talk about in the book, the, the Gloucester Sea Serpent, was this uh, extremely well-documented cryptid sighting um, in the, the 18-teens, I think eighteen seventeen, um, that has been more or less ignored by, you know, a lot of kind of, you know, mainstream understandings of cryptids in favor of the Loch Ness Monster and, and Bigfoot and, um, you know, a couple others. So, you know, partly I was just like, you know, why was this thing, which, which by any objective standards is much more well-documented than, than Bigfoot or the Yeti or whatever, nonetheless um, kind of get, you know, play second fiddle. So yeah, so I, I really wanted to kind of try and understand those. And, and I think what I found um, was that in a lot of cases, these beliefs are you know, these, um, these beings, these objects, whatever you want to call them light up a kind of central hmm, kind of narrative that works for the person who believes in them. You know, I mean, I think that's a, that's a kind of abstract way of saying it. I mean, they, um, they, they do, they do something for people. They, they explain the world in a way, you know, I mean, I think for, for everyone who actually has, you know, has had a UFO sighting in some form or another, um, there are a bunch of other people who haven't, but who, you know, and to, to quote the X-Files, want to believe because the idea of, you know, UFOs will, uh, it's, it's pleasing, you know, I mean, you know, the possibility is exciting or, you know, what it says about our relationship to the government sort of checks out in their belief, you know, I mean, like it, it does something for them in a way that goes beyond, I think, just, you know, the question of, of documentary evidence.
2: So you've got, you've got a long, narrative section on ufo's since uh 1947 can, can you talk a little bit about sort of your take on that you know history and timeline yeah i mean the,
3: the idea that there are unidentified objects in the sky i mean those that that belief goes back you know uh millennia you know i mean you can find it in you know ancient greek and roman writing so it's 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 not as though when Kenneth Arnold sees, um, you know, seven batwing-shaped silver objects flying over Mount Rainier, that that's the beginning of, um, you know, UFO sightings by any means. So, so to start there is, in some sense, a little bit arbitrary, but it also is the moment at which those strange objects in the sky... Become crystallized as a certain kind of thing, you know, but prior to that um, You know, I mean again, you can go back millennia and you you have objects in the sky, which are you know omens or they're signs from gods or whomever, you know and and That's sort of one stable narrative trajectory, right? Um, you know or they are, you know, sort of magical in some sense or, or another and what happens in in 1947 is that suddenly these things are no longer considered to be I guess, supernatural, they're, they're, sort of, they're sort of paranormal while also being sort of scientifically plausible. And I think that sort of changes how we start to see you know, what a UFO is or what, what a thing in the sky might be in a way that's, that's sort of new and different.
2: So there's this sort of progression of, I, I don't know, sort, sort of conceptualizing what the UFOs are. Like you, you kind of start off with, the contactees who, you know, by modern standards, I, I kind of feel like seem a little quaint, um, but there's, you know, past that or beyond that, there's this sense that um, that that people's ideas about UFOs and how the government's dealing with them are um, reflective of sort of what's going on in government in non sort of fringe things and people's perceptions of that and, and I think you brought up in in the book you know Vietnam uh, uh Pro Watergate um, you know th- there are lots of examples um, so what what was your what's your sense of that.
0: Yeah,
3: I mean, one of the things that that became really early on, you know, clear to me really early on is I think that in a lot of ways, you know, belief in, in cryptids parallels belief in, you know, parallels a belief in UFOs, and and you see that again in terms of just you know who believes what and that kind of stuff. But but very early on, it also was made clear to me that there's there's one really specific way in which they're different is that, you know, you either believe in the Loch Ness monster, or you don't, but what you you don't believe that the Loch Ness monster is uh, the existence of the Lockton sponsors being uh, covered up by the government. Whereas, if you believe in UFOs, almost by default, you believe that the government knows m- more than they're letting on, and it's being, um, you know, hidden from us in some some fashion. And I I found that to be, again, you know, considering that both of these ideas, you know, prior to World War II, were were pretty. Uh, synchronous, uh, you know in terms of uh, the shape of 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 the narrative that accompanied these beliefs suddenly in the wake of world war two And and for me, I think really in the wake of the manhattan project, which was this incredibly successful attempt to keep a Completely unknown and unknowable and world-changing technological weapon uh entirely out of the public eye until it was used right, you know, I mean like, you know, the 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 amount of secrecy required to keep the manhattan project secret and the success that they had you know sort of Gave the world a sense that um, you know and specifically americans as well, you know that that the american government was capable of Doing absolutely unheard of things in utter secrecy and you know And again, I I don't think it's a coincidence that you know, so much of the modern ufo Lore is about you know, the deserts of new mexico and nevada and arizona, you know precisely where you know, the Manhattan Project was located outside of Santa Fe, right? So um, so I think that that the Manhattan Project suddenly makes the 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 idea that the government is capable of of covering up something beyond belief quite plausible. And so the arrival of of, you know, the kind of modern UFO myth really becomes to, reflect that idea that it it is absolutely within the realm of plausibility that the government has uh, these sort of secret supernatural paranormal things going on at all times and and it's only a matter of time before we all know about them.
1: at purdueglobal.edu. You
2: know, one of the things that that you cover in your book is the story of Paul Benowitz and William Moore and and Richard Doty. And what's your sense of how that fits into what you were just talking about. The story of Paul Benowitz, again, I mean, you know, so, so what I was just
3: talking about, you know, is, is I think, a, a sort of a credulity among people about what the government is capable of doing you know, the, the lengths of uh, secrecy that, that it can sustain, which, which frankly, I, I myself have a difficulty going there a lot of the times because you know i mean i look at actual conspiracies uh like something like watergate you know watergate as soon as you know woodward and bernstein and and the new york times started asking questions about watergate the whole thing fell apart you know it was you know barely two years later before nixon resigns right so it's like once you actually start asking around about government secrets it's usually the case that if they are big enough um and they are momentous enough You'll find people who can talk, you know, I mean, you know, you, you, you can find secretaries, you can find, uh, janitors, you can find bookkeepers, you know, somebody knows something that, you know, is willing to talk. So that's why I've always been somewhat skeptical about, you know, some of this sort of more outlandish government conspiracy theories. And then I came across the story of Paul Benowitz and I was frankly flabbergasted by the depths of, cynicism and um, uh, Sort of disdain with which a um, You know a government operation would treat um, not just an American citizen, but a, a, a Veteran and someone who you know worked for the government and deeply loved his government and this idea that You know as Paul Benowitz began, you know living on the edge of Kirtland uh, Air Force Base in Albuquerque um, began to see things above the skies, um, of Kirtland air force base and, and photographing them and distributing them to, you know, his UFO believer, um, you know, networks, the government, it seems to me, I mean, you know, what I presume is the most sort of Occam's razor example, you know, explanation is that there was some sort of, you know, top secret, uh, craft of some kind being, you know, um, I don't know, uh, tested out there, you know, but that, that, uh, the air force could have Paul called in Paul Benowitz and said, you know, look uh, what you saw was classified and you being a good patriot, we're just going to ask you to just, you know, stop sending out those, those images, you know, and and I, I have no reason to think that Paul Benowitz, who's, who's not only was a patriot, but his livelihood, his company was a, a Air Force contractor. So there's no reason he would have sacrificed his livelihood. Um, but they don't do that. Instead, they say, we are going to pump this guy with an, an elaborate campaign of disinformation to the point where you know they they gave him a computer that they said was receiving extraterrestrial communications of unknown origin and, and could he help them you know decode any of it and so and then they just bombarded this computer with just gibberish that they were broadcasting from across the street to make him think that he was getting alien signals you know and so you know things like that where it's just this very bizarre and elaborate sustained uh, campaign to take a, a, you know, a law-abiding and patriotic American citizen and basically uh, more or less drive him crazy, you know, like to, to like push him to the point where nobody would take him seriously because he was advancing these wild and, and unverifiable um, theories about aliens. And that just seems to me, I mean, it's, it's a really sad and tragic story. I mean, there's there's so much like pathos involved in there. And also I think it does speak to a kind of weird cynicism that, that seems to drive some levels of, of the U.S. government.
2: Yeah, you know, it, it just seems so unnecessary, <laughs> like you were saying. I, I was struck by that, too. It's like this seems like a lot of effort to do something that's completely unnecessary and, you know, with malintent, I guess you know, my take in some sense is
3: they were testing out to see what they could get away with, you know, that, that again, it was not only was it unnecessary, but I think that there was some element, um, you know, among, um, you know, the air force intelligence officers involved of like, you know, like, uh, you know, what happens if we do this, you know, like it was, it was a a little sort of guinea pig experiment that they, they carried out on this, this unwitting, uh, you know, guy who ended up, you know, really, really suffering through what seems like, you know, sort of a lot of the hallmarks of, of, you know, clinical psychosis
2: as a result. So and I'm just going to read like a brief part. And this is actually, um, is in the context of uh, cryptid hoaxes, but I, I thought it was sort of widely applicable. It's a, you're, you're talking about Kevin Young's maxim, quote, hoaxes prove that believing is seeing, end quote. Whatever's in those documents is what you choose to put into them, whatever you need them to be. And then you pick up the quote again. The hoax is rather a kind of coded confession, revealing not only a deep-seated cultural wish, but also a common set of themes or feints or strategies that add up to a ritual. That, that seems to me to be fairly, certainly widely applicable to almost all the stuff that you're talking about in here. Oh yeah, and and definitely. I mean, and
3: you know, Kevin Kevin Young's book for for those of you who don't know it, uh, bunk is um, absolutely fantastic. What Young is interested in is is particularly hoaxes that that reflect uh, an American ambivalence about race. So you know, various white authors who have you know published fake memoirs as you know uh, you know black or Native American writers or something like that, and then have been sort of found out and and that kind of stuff. And so. So what Young is sort of tracing, which I think is, is really valuable and important, is the way in which, as that quote just sort of implies, you know, that, that the idea that a hoax is a kind of attempt to make a myth into reality, you know, that if you have a kind of, and again, this is sort of, you know, his argument, not not so much mine, but I'm, I'm paraphrasing his argument, which I, I agree with, that... You know, if you have a sort of narrative about "quote unquote" inner city crime or urban poverty or whatever, and then a white person comes along and and writes a, a memoir as a black person, sort of burying out these these myths and these sort of misconceptions, then, you know, that's that's what the hoax is there to do. The hoax is there to sort of make the the, the false thing look true. And and so, with my book, you know, when I'm moving into you know things like cryptids and UFOs, I mean. There's a lot that I talk about where I, I don't I don't have any evidence to to believe that you know a given story is a hoax. I don't have a I don't have a good explanation. I think there's a lot that remains unexplained, and so I, I by no means want to assert that the whole, you know the whole field is full of hoaxes. But you know we do have a number of very obvious uh, documented hoaxes, and in fact, um, you know one of the again one of the more tragically, you know, uh, weird, uh, stories is this guy in, uh, Kalispell, Montana, who, um, buys a, a, ghillie suit, which is a, you know, sort of extreme camouflage where you, you, you know, the suit is supposed to make you look like a pile of leaves, you know, so you can sort of lie prone and, you know, be a sniper or whatever. Um, and he, he wears this suit and he, he wanders out onto the freeway at night hoping that a motorist will catch just a glimpse of him and um, and believe it to be a bigfoot, you know. So it's a it's a bigfoot hoax thing, but um, he uh, he gets hit by uh, not one but two cars actually, and ends up dead, you know, and ends up you know killed. And so there's this this really strange sort of story about you know an attempt to create a hoax to kind of gin up a belief in a thing which this person knows to be false uh, that ends up backfiring in this horrible way. And I, and so I think that when you catalog a lot of the the history of of hoaxes you know um ufo photos where where it's sort of clearly a hubcap or a side view mirror or something like that and you you sort of aggregate all of them in this kind of kind of compendium which you you get is again and again a sort of aching desire to make a thing true at all costs even to the point of sort of you know inventing the
2: whole the thing from whole cloth that's interesting going back to the whole Doty and Benowitz, you know, one of the big differences there, although it's a big hoax, is that he, you know, it's not coming from this sort of sincere hope to make something that you wish was real, have other people also believe it's real. It's just this absolutely cynical exercise. Yeah,
3: that's a a good point. And yeah, and at the same time, it makes me think just, you know, what you're saying just makes me think of it, but it's also an attempt to see, like, how... I guess I guess the thing is the more people desire something to be true, the easier it is to 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 feed them lies, right? You know, the you know the people buy things because they 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 want to believe that they're true. And so I I feel like with with Dodie trying to sort of spread these these hoaxes throughout the UFO community, it was also a sense to see like, you know, how deep is, you know, quote the Bee Gees, how deep is this love? You know, like how um, how easy will it be to get people to believe this because that becomes an index of how strong the, the belief is. And it turns out that, uh, you know, until Bill Moore kind of, you know, gave his mea culpa, the belief was really strong. People were, 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 were desperate, even to the point to, you know, accepting things that, that didn't hold up under any scrutiny whatsoever, but they accepted them to be true because, you know, that strong desire to, to
2: have the thing be real. Another thing that you you bring up that I thought uh, would be would be interesting to the people who are listening is this idea of stigmatized knowledge. I, I realize I'm kind of pulling a term out of out of the book, but do you? Yeah, I mean,
3: this again, this is a really this is this is difficult for me to kind of harsh because I, I find myself often on both sides of this in in some ways. And, you know, again, when I was when I was trying to sort of make sense of, of the genealogy of some of these beliefs, I kept coming back to this period at the end of the nineteenth century when um, you know scientific sort of Uh, methodology and thought becomes kind of institutionalized, right? So you have the rise of PhD programs, which uh, don't exist in America before the 1870s. You have the rise of professional organizations. So, you know, you can't just be, can't just be a country doctor anymore. Now you have to belong to the, you know, uh, American Physicians Association or whatever it is, you know, and so, so things sort of get ossified in these, these institutions. And I think, in some ways, I think that's good. You you know prevents you know I don't know quacks from you know taking people's money for you know dubious medical practices. It it allows you to make scientific uh, discoveries at you know at scale, which you know are, are are much easier to do in a kind of you know university with you know grant funding or in a you know whatever. Yeah, I mean you know what I'm saying. Um, but it also then creates this kind of a uh, group of outsiders who, who rightly or wrongly, feel that they are uh, not going to be taken as seriously because they're not part of this institution, and um, and that their contributions should be considered just as valid. And so, through through what I found is sort of um, you know this period of kind of the institutionalization of science is when you first get the rise of uh you know what i what i call in the book and what you know as they were known then cranks you know these these people like uh Ignatius Donnelly who was not an archaeologist or an anthropologist or or did he do any field work but he he writes the book you know on Atlantis the, the first sort of modern book on Atlantis arguing that it is a real place that you know it existed and that it sunk into the sea and and you know he has no scientific basis for this but um he's not Daunted by this, and it turns out to be you know, pretty popular. And so this institutionalization of science also begets the rise of cranks, who are people on the outside of science arguing for scientific knowledge in fact. And so, you know, so stigmatized knowledge, I think, sort of sort of comes out of that, that divide. I mean, you know, what do you do with this stuff which is sort of outside of the bounds of acceptable science? And, and thus not going to be taken seriously in a kind of mainstream scientific discourse. Like on the one hand, I think that's that seems good. That seems right. Um, you know, um, on the other hand, science is only as ever as good as the scientists who, who do the science, right? So that, you know, I mean, you know, science gets it wrong all the time. And we depend on a kind of external system of, of checks and balances to make sure that, you know, that kind of institutionalized science is in itself uh, making, you know, dangerous errors of fact and judgment, which it is often capable of doing everything from, you know, I don't know, eugenics to, um, you know, you name it. And so, so I I think that it's, on the one hand, I I find myself often sort of skeptical of a lot of stuff that falls under that category of stigmatized knowledge. I also find it a really vital and uh, valuable sort of arena precisely because it, it offers one of the few kind of, you know, uh, checks we have against, you know, a, a, an institutionalization of science that might be, uh, you know, prone to its own problems.
2: Yeah, it's interesting. I, you quote um, Don Dondery in the book, and I, I, I had a fairly long conversation with him for the first season of Strange Arrivals, and a fair amount of it was about sort of the frustrations of trying to do scientific research on UFOs and how there's just there's it's just not part of science right there's there are no grants you can get there's no place that's going to peer review papers about UFOs that it just sort of exists in this in this place, and you know he was sort of expressing his frustration and trying to get anybody to take it seriously for those reasons
3: on the one hand, I, I think that's a valid you know that's a that's a valid complaint and you know I also saw that a lot with um, uh, loch ness monster believers right you know that you know uh, it's not it's not cheap to to trawl the bottom of loch ness with you know a sonar array looking for unidentified large creatures right you know it takes takes funding you know and and mainstream science is not going to pay for that funding and thus it you know it doesn't get done and becomes a sort of Circular argument where you know people say, "Well, we have no scientific evidence, but we're also not going to pay for the the scientific inquiry that might turn up that evidence." And I, I get that that is sort of frustrating. The flip side is um, the cost to doing that kind of of research has actually plummeted with the the you know just the uh, increases in sort of technological achievement and you know what you can accomplish and document with a freaking iPhone. You know, to say nothing of $10,000 or whatever worth of, of high-tech equipment will get you quite far. And so we, we both see on the one hand, the sort of sense of like, well, we're not, we're not sort of putting enough money into, to, you know, possibly finding these discoveries, but at the same time, we're also at a point I think technologically where these
2: discoveries actually don't take that much money anymore and we're still not finding them. So. All right. Well, uh, I really appreciate your time. This was awesome. Um, yeah, thanks. It was A lot of fun. Yeah. Thanks for reaching out. Thanks. Have a good uh, rest of your day. Yeah, you too. Thanks a lot. Strange Arrivals is a production of iHeart3D Audio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. This episode was written and hosted by Toby Ball and produced by Miranda Hawkins and Josh Thane with executive producers Alex Williams, Matt Frederick, and Aaron Mankey. Learn more about Strange Rivals over at GrimAndMild.com and find more podcasts from iHeartRadio by visiting the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. You never want to find yourself out on the water fishing without the essentials. So it's best to always pack a Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie to protect against the sun. I mean, it provides great protection and it's really breathable so you don't get hot. That's a win-win. Columbia PFG has a lot of great gear. So before you head out on the water, head over to Columbia.com slash PFG to shop their performance
0: fishing gear. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit RightRug.com.